Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 23 to 32. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you an abundance of rain, the early and the later rain, as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil, and I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent against you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I, the Lord, am your God. There is no other, and my people shall never again be put to shame. Then afterward I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days I will pour out my Spirit. I will show portents in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors there shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. All right, I don't know uh, if you could tell by the passage we just read, but Joel is a prophet of poetic rhetoric. Did you pick up on that? All right, Joel, in just three chapters, 73 verses, he uses inclusio, metaphor, repetition, alliteration, chiasm, rhetorical questions, and personification, along with an abundance of imperative verbs, which call people into action. James Crenshaw sums up the prophet best by saying that Joel is best remembered for having turned historical events into apocalyptic images. See, there's some confusion on what exactly Joel is talking about in verse 25 when he says, I will repay you for the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. Turns out there is no record of anything remotely close to a swarm of locusts having happened in the time of Joel or ever. Uh, Now, there's the ten plagues and the locust in Egypt, but, you know, that's been a few years, and, well, it's not Israel, it's Egypt. Um, But if we go back and we read Joel more carefully, what we see is that the locust is in reference to the army of an invading nation. We know that Joel is a prophet to Judah sometime after uh, the returning from exile in Babylon. So remember with me, right, Israel is going to split in two. It's going to be Israel in the south, uh, Israel in the north. It's the second time I've messed that up. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Uh, Israel is eventually going to be overtaken by Assyria. uh, Judah is eventually going to be overtaken by Babylon, right? And if you've never seen one ancient Middle Eastern nation overtake another, I'll give you one guess of what type of poetic imagery you would use to illustrate the utter destruction of your people. That's right. A swarm of locusts. But if the prophet is coming after the exile, then Joel is not saying that the locusts are coming, but explaining why they came. Joel is remembering the Babylonian conquest 
and the exile, and he's trying to make sense of what happened now that Judah is allowed to return home. See, as it turns out, when your world starts falling apart, you start seeking answers to what went wrong. And if it's bad enough, you start combing through the history books, looking for that moment that set everything in motion where A leads to B and B leads to C until we get to D for destruction. After battle, you find yourselves beaten, bruised, and bloodied. And as you look around and count the casualties of war, you start to notice something. You start to notice that not everything is lost. You are still here. Others are still with you. And as you sit in exile and begin to feel deserted by God, you notice that God is still with you. You slowly start to remember the promise of God who said in Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and courageous. I will never leave you or forsake you. So the passage set before us this morning is not about stopping the swarm. That has already happened. The passage is about what happens next, based off of God's faithfulness to fulfill His promises. God speaks through Joel to teach us that in these times, we must grieve the losses. They are weighing down our soul. Repent and take ownership of our actions. They are blinding us to God's outstretched arm. Our culture teaches us not to do this, right? It's not respectable. It's painful. It's embarrassing. It's humbling. It makes us vulnerable. We are taught to guard against such weakness and operate in a position of strength. But God, who so richly blesses his people who remembers their sins no more and clothes them with honor and glory and righteousness, reminds us that there is no strength apart from him. There is no power or position or glory to be had apart from the presence of God. And so Joel implores the people to re-engage with the living God. And in verses 12 and 13, he declares that yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all of your hearts, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relents from punishing whether literal or metaphorical, the proper response to the world falling in around us is always lamentation and repentance. Repentance for the things that we have done and the things that we have failed to do. Lament for the destruction we have caused and the casualties of war that could have been prevented. This involves a serious and a series of intentional and self-examination on us as individuals and as a congregation to say, have I, have we behaved in a way that displeases God? What has been my role in the world crumbling around me? Is there part of the covenant of God that I, that we have failed to uphold and therefore caused the drought that we are in? And when we begin to honestly answer these questions before God and before one another, God responds by declaring that I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten. You shall eat and be satisfied. 
You shall once again praise the name of your Lord, your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I, the only God there is, am in your midst. And my people will never be put to shame. Some of you have asked me what it's like uh, to be back at Trinity as your pastor. Well, it's been interesting uh, in a few ways, but there is one thing that has stood out uh, above the others. And as I've sat and as I've reconnected with you, there's one common theme that has begun to emerge. Uh, Trinity is not what it used to be. And as I've sat with that these past few months, I've come to understand that you're not so much giving me a warning as you are trying to explain a present reality. And as we live in this present reality, there seems to be a lingering atmosphere of anxiety and shame. But hearing you talk about the glory days of Trinity breaks my heart. It implies that you have either given up on God or that you believe that God has given up on us. As people of the infinite, timeless, merciful God, do we not understand that if we bemoan what is, because it is not what was, that we risk missing what God is doing here and now? I know who you used to be. I know all about the glory days of Trinity. I know what a glory-filled, God-honoring church you can be. I was raised in this church. I stand here before you today as your pastor because the people of this church raised me to be faithful in both the word and in the deed of our holy God. I was here when this service began in the sanctuary, then it grew, then it was in the gym, and then it grew till we built an entire building for the people to worship God. That's the building you stand in today. When I first met Kyle McCaskill, he had hair. (laughs) He had long hair. We were never perfect, but we were always faithful. But we cannot get our identity from what once was. As a church birthed from the living God, we must proclaim our identity from the great I am. We serve the living God who delights in manifesting his glory throughout the timeline of human history until we all gather on that final day when we see God face to face and worship him in one voice at his heavenly throne. The God who was, who is, and who will be is present and active yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God has always been at work reconciling the world back to himself, and everything is rooted in that day when shame and uh, guilt gave way to victory and everlasting life. We were created to be image bearers of God, and we are called to be ambassadors of Christ so that the world may come to know the joy and the peace of his everlasting, steadfast love. And because this reality is true, we must understand deep within our souls that we are fighting a war not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this dark world, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But we fight not on our own accord, but by the strength of the one who sent us out with power and authority to bind evil, Matthew 18, and to resist sin and the devil, James 4, 7. We go out with the authority of the one who overcame death and the grave and who promised to be with us always to the end of the age. There it is. And though we may enter the heavenly gates war-torn, beaten, and bruised, we will dip our robes in the blood of the Lamb, and they will come out as white as snow. Every tear will be wiped away. Pain, hurt, death, and sorrow will be no more. So as a church, let us lean into, let us press boldly into these truths as a people of God covered by his abounding grace and his steadfast love. And rest assured, church, the glory of God has not departed from among us. God is not done with Trinity. God has not given up on us yet, and I don't believe that God ever fully left this place. I believe that we are still standing because God is not done with us. God is ready to use this church to impact the people of this town in mighty ways that we haven't dreamt of in a long time. If we will come together as a church and band together as brothers and sisters in Christ, if we will put Christ back at the center of who we are and what we do, this church is going to thrive for the glory of God in mighty ways. When we get back to Christ being over all and in all, when Christ is the supreme thing that drives who we are as a people and how we run our church, this church will see God move in miraculous ways. So let me be clear. God does not relent because we perfected our method of pleas for restoration. We call on God's promises and appeal to God's character, not ours, as the basis of salvation and restoration. It is God's loving mercy calling on God's name that sidelines shame and brings salvation. God's movement through the prophet Joel is unlike any other. Joel follows the typical uh, prophetic pattern that we see in the Old Testament, right? Problem, warning, repentance, deliverance. But there's a a key to understanding uh, the passage this morning that happens alone in Joel. Joel alone, out of all the prophets, looks back at the covenant that God made with his people in order to, so that he might point the people forward to what will be fulfilled in Acts 2 when God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. There is something to the glory days. The foundational truth to these memories is that God did a mighty thing in the history of our church. I'm not convinced that we are a church stuck in the past, but I am worried that if we are a church so focused on what God once did, that we miss what God is doing now, and we miss where God is calling us to go in the future. As a people of Pentecost, we are the people that Joel was prophesying about. You and I have access to the glory of God like never before in human history. All the great and mighty uh, wonders that happened in the Old Testament didn't happen with the Holy Spirit. Right? Like, not by name, not how they happen in the New Testament, right? Not after the Pentecost event, right? 
Okay, so if great things happen in the Bible, guess what great things are going to happen to us here and now? No longer does God reside in temples made by human hands, but our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Our lives are meant to be living stones on which a spiritual house is being built, 1 Peter 2, 5, if you're taking notes. We have gone too long in this country without a real and present desire for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. What would change in our lives and in the life of our church if we earnestly and desperately pleaded with God to move through us in mighty ways? Remember hearing uh, people talk about revival, right? Leonard Ravenhill, uh, I believe it was, I could have that wrong, but he said, uh, you want a revival? Go in your room, draw a circle on the floor, get inside the circle and pray for everything inside the circle to change. Lord, send a revival and let it begin with me. Another pastor would say, we are, we are busy praying for the Holy Spirit to bring the fire of revival, but nobody is stacking the wood. Let us be a church that gets busy stacking the wood so that when the fire comes, we may grab hold of it and fan the flames of God's glory. What would happen if we cried out like Father Abraham who wrestled with God and then grabbed hold of God's glory and said, I will not let you go until you bless me? What if we pleaded with God like Moses, show me your glory? I believe that God is already stirring in our midst, ready to raise up a new generation. And I know that there are some of you who see it and who are leaning into where God has called you to move. Tell us so that we might know, right? We forget that the church needs to hear the stories as well. Speak to us just as much as you speak to those outside. Teach us where God is moving within you so that we might see it. Some of you aren't so sure. You haven't given up hope quite yet, but you're a bit nervous about stepping in with everything you have and everything you are. Take courage. Do not be afraid. The glory of God has not left this place. How we respond to God in this moment determines the manifestation of God's glory that we experience in the next. So you tell me, church, what is coming in the clouds through the air above Trinity? Is it locust or the Lord? Are we going to be a people who wallow in the drought or call on the divine? If we want what once was a powerful working of God to come again, then we must focus on God again, recreating a hunger for the spirit that inspires, convicts, and transforms. God triumphantly declares to all that all who call on his name will be saved. His promise to never leave us or forsake us holds true from one moment of time to the next. His promise to be strong and courageous comes rooted in the fact that he will be our guide. He will be our strength and our shield. The risen Lord sends out his disciples precisely because I will be with you to the end of the age. And Jesus Christ never leaves us alone, but he sends us the Holy Spirit an ever-present comfort in times of trouble, an advocate between us and God, and a light 
to our souls. So I am pleading with you as your pastor, because we have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race that has been marked out for us, turning our eyes to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I know how you church people get. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Talking about the glory days is not a bad thing. We absolutely should remember the saints that have gone on before us, give witness to their testimony about what the glory of God has done in this place. But remembering is not just about recalling stories. Biblical remembering is the act of recalling the glory of God that made these stories miracles that we want to tell in each generation, from one generation to the next. Israel was constantly called to remember the past provisions of God in order that they may find strength in the present and resolve for the future. Because God's fulfillment of past promises is evidence of God's desire to fill full His future promises. Remember what God has done. But let us only talk about what was in order to spark what will be. Let us be a people who use the past as fuel to rekindle a fire fire that burns deep within our bones that we grow tired of holding in and cannot for the glory of God. God desperately implores his people, do not just remember, re-engage. Here's the thing. We have access to the glory of God today, right now. Not so that we might be a great church, but that so we might be a city shining on a hill, so all who see it come to know the glory of God, the hope that remains, and the reality of God in our midst. When this becomes the definition of who we are and what we do as a church, then nothing can stand against us. Let's pray. Like God, we thank you for your faithfulness to uphold your promises and to give us what we need in the time that we need it. We ask that you would continue to reveal your glory among us, that you would give us the strength and the boldness to go where you were calling us to go next, and that you would remind us that you are a God who never leaves us or forsakes us, but gives us strength. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Trinity Podcast. To find out more about Trinity, visit us online at www.trinityreston.org.